Welcome, everybody. It's another episode of No Driving Gloves. We're somewhere around that 100 mark. This might even be the 100th episode. I don't know. We kind of gave up counting, and we just do this, eh, try every week. Uh, it's an interesting night tonight. We kind of have the same description we always do. You have John, you have Derek, and we have a McPherson graduate also. Uh, unfortunately, this week, like Will said, some of these episodes are going to be out of order, so maybe you've heard the episode, maybe you're not, but Will's uh, getting ready for some big event, I can't remember what, and getting the Rocket Racing Camaro set up and tuned in and dialed, and so he can't be with us tonight, but we have somebody that started McPherson a year after Will and I and hung around a few years after us and has kind of built himself a pretty decent uh career in the automotive industry. Uh, Adam Martin. First, we'll do what we normally do. Anybody doing anything exciting this week or anything coming up that we want to touch on? Me, I'm still my boring life trying to get the business started and playing some car games of my own, trying to figure out how to become debt-free here in the next couple of weeks. Well, I, I guess that, that depends on when you release this episode, John. So d- depending on where we fall in the lineup here, uh, obviously on the last episode or maybe the next episode or whichever episode, I talked about buying a, a new vehicle for the private collection and been working on that. It's a 1919 Chevrolet 490 Touring and uh, actually about, I don't know, 20 minutes before half hour before recording uh, this episode. Uh, The engine was seized when I purchased the car. It is no longer seized and it is freely rotating. So that was exciting. And for anybody that's listening, this is the, we're recording this the the week before Labor Day. Uh, At work, we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the National Corvette Museum with about 10,000 of our closest Corvette friends. If anyone's in the Bowling Green area, you know, the traffic is a little rough right now. So far, it's been a blast. It's the first day going back tomorrow for the second, and uh, we're just going to have a good time celebrating 25 years of the museum. So my week's been pretty hectic, John. So Adam, you up to anything exciting or amazing that there's a quick story since we don't want to Huge background, or do you just, you got any car projects going on, things? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Uh, What car guy doesn't have a car car project going on, or at least uh, a short list of things they'd like to get to? And uh, thanks for for inviting me to stand in in Will's uh, shoes uh, for tonight's episode. It's it's an honor. And uh, yeah, for me, I'm I'm fresh off a couple of weeks of travel being in Monterey for the annual Car Week and the Pebble Beach Concours, which is sort of the stratosphere in the automotive world. And to be honest, I'm back in New Orleans and uh, tomorrow night uh, in my little town where I live of Covington, there is the final Friday of the month little block party. Moving to Louisiana, I have quickly learned that this town really loves getting together and having a celebration. And what better time to do that than a Friday night? (laughs) So our little town closes down Main Street and all the car guys show up and park their cars on Main Street. The police are there to close things down. The bars and restaurants and art galleries are open and it's just this 
this really fun street party. So that's tomorrow night, and I have the privilege of uh, driving. My uh, my father-in-law has uh, said that the uh, the little Mini Cooper needs some exercise, so he's got a 67 Mini that we'll take out and uh, bring over to the block party, hang out with some car guys and see some customers, come back to reality off of that big Pebble Beach High. So looking forward to that. And that Pebble Beach High is one of the reasons I reached out to you. I'm laying around, I'll be honest, and this is probably a horrible thought for many of our listeners, but I'm laying around in bed the other night and uh, (laughs) surfing Facebook, and it's about (laughs) midnight. All of a sudden, I'm scrolling, and somebody's got a live feed from uh, Monterey and the RM auction. And I go, ooh, this is cool. I want to see this car. And so I did a little bit of watching and... Again, depending on how these episodes come out, everything should be out in order. And uh, so if you've listened in order, you're good. But the uh, Type 64, quote, Porsche, unquote, uh, was <laughs> going across the block. I don't know how to really address that car. And Adam was in the room with that. I don't know how many of our listeners have actually read or seen what happened or have discussed. I know I've put a little bit on our uh, social media about it. I know Bloomberg's reported on it. Uh, Spike Ferriston, Spike's Cart Radio's definitely reported on it. I think, you know, some of the business channels have. Uh, RM did a pretty good job of not reporting on it. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) Adam, do you want to give a little rundown of what happened that night and kind of what the take is? As I've said, the press has said one thing, but it's always nice to have somebody's in the room because I heard, you know, people booed and walked out of the room and it just was detrimental to the even the remainder of the evening for the auction. What was your, you know, what did you observe? What did you see? And literally, and probably the most important thing is, what did you hear? Sure. Yes, this was um, this was a Monterey like no other, and in many regards, I've been been going to Monterey for at least eighteen years now that I can count. It's an automotive event that I look forward to year over year. I mean, it really is the epicenter on many levels, uh, from you know Concorde de Lemons to the Concorde de Elegance at the 18th Fairway at Pebble Beach. Uh, it is it is where I can really exercise my my wholehearted you know automotive enthusiasm to race cars, to the brass era, to sports cars. And then you've got the elegant stuff that shows up at the quail or at pebble. And of course you have the auctions that support um, all of those, you know, automotive events during the day, uh, whether it be RM Sotheby's or Gooding or Meekum, uh, worldwide group is there. Russo and Steel are there. It's, it's really a lot of fun. So for me, it's, I, I try to get everywhere I can on the peninsula to try to soak it all up because uh, it's, it's so intense and so exciting. Exciting. And, you know, it's like Christmas Day every day for about a week for me out there. Heading into RM Sotheby's Saturday night. I mean, it's it is it is prime time. It is just like, you know, every other year or every other uh, major Concours weekend like Amelia Island or even in Scottsdale for uh, for the auction week there. You know, timing is everything. And so there are key key times in the auction schedule, you know, where they're going to kind of benchmark these cars throughout the lineup of vehicles being sold that night and they staged the this type 64 to be the sort of the bookend or the hero car for saturday night rightfully so they spent a lot of money to market to advertise it it's certainly a significant car in automotive history it's got a lot of famous people touching it it's got a famous name on it there's lots of public opinion 
getting to the evening, it was um, like like many other RM Sotheby's nights, uh, Friday night or Saturday night. If you've never been to Monterey, it's at the Monterey Plaza Convention Center. I think that's what it's called. I have all the auction cars outside, out front of the uh, Portola Plaza Hotel. Any Joe Public on the street can walk by, and there's a fence that kind of keeps you away, from, you know, keeps your greasy mitts off the cars. It's it's exciting. There are lights. The auctioneer's voice is pumped outside. All the cars are kind of queuing in and getting ready to go into the ballroom, and then when after they're sold, they drive out of the ballroom. So being outside of the Portola Plaza for the R. Sotheby sales is, is exciting by itself and it's totally free and they get to see all the best cars coming and going out of the auction so you know there was that normal excitement of the auction outside taking place and then as you make your way into the auction room you need to be a registered bidder or have paid your fee you know to buy basically a seat in the room or a place to stand at this point because during the course of the week, all the other auctions have sort of stopped for the day, and it's just the larger auctions, you know, Arm and um, Gooding in the evenings. And, you know, it's standing room only. And I think RM said they had like 1,400 bidders, registered bidders for this sale. I don't know the ballroom could hold 1,400 people. It might be closer to 500. I'm just kind of ballparking it. Uh, but everyone squeezes in uh, into the ballroom. There's only X amount of seats, uh, and then everyone else is standing in the back of the room and along the sides. So it's it's extremely crowded, but that's kind of the buzz. That is the feeling, you know, of, uh, you know, kind of what adds excitement uh, to, to, you know, the the frenzy of the auction room and, uh, you know, to be at in the room at the time the car sells. Like many auctions, uh, these kind of these premium feature cars are now having these wonderful videos made, sort of sizzle reels and commercials for cars. What Arm and Sotheby's did is they played a little 30 seconds, uh, wonderful sizzle reel about the vehicle that kind of primes the audience and you know hopefully adds a little momentum uh into the vehicle to stimulate some bidding and then the auctioneer welcomes the car to the stage and it drives in you know all by itself it's remarkably quiet uh i've certainly heard side pipe you know cobras drive in i've heard race cars i've seen all kinds of stuff drive in and when they rev the motor it certainly you know gets everyone's attention and uh usually a round of applause but this uh this little type 64 just kind of like putters right in and parks right on the stage there was there was some applause and some oohs and ahs uh from the audience coming in i was uh, i was about the third row up kind of in the middle of the room having worked my way up through the audience and found some open seats because <laughs> i knew this was going to be an important sale so i wanted to be as close as i could without you know kneeling at the front of the stage and being shushed away at this point auction you know everyone's there everyone's got their phones up everyone is excited the the cars there the auctioneers talking about it and the and the bidding opens they really didn't you know with many auctions some of these premium or these important cars they don't even mention uh, a reserve or even provide like a price range john you probably see in catalogs where they they provide like a uh, a range estimate right yeah so with this car they just left it wide open you know purchase available upon request kind of thing the auctioneer uh, was very excited to get it going open the bidding <laughs> I actually shot this uh, live on my phone, did that Facebook Messenger live or that Instagram live, which uh, which you saw. I didn't know 
how important it was going to be to maybe capture the screen, the overhead screen that shows the bidding increments um, behind the auctioneer and, and uh, behind the stage, behind the car. So I'm trying to hold my phone up, you know, and watch the auctioneer and to watch the car and to watch the screen and then to pan the room. I didn't, you know, I, I wish I would have captured some more, but I'm, I'm glad I captured it because I, I rewatched it today a couple of times and I timed the whole process because for me being in the room, it felt like an eternity, but now that I've, I've rewatched it and uh, have timed it, um, it's amazing how it uh, can get blown out of proportion. So what I'm speaking to is the auctioneer op- you know, announces the car, opens the bidding. He instantly asks for you know, $13 million. And uh, the audience is like, ooh, and ah, and oh my goodness. And, uh, but what the auctioneer doesn't know is that behind him on the screen – uh, the number 30 million, three zero was typed up on the screen. And you hear the auctioneer say, yes, asking for 30, 30 you know, 30 or 13. Um, for those of you who are not there in the room or, or have watched the video, the auctioneer is from Ireland, uh, Scots, uh, Scotland. I, it's not English, but it is that dialect. And forgive me for not knowing exactly, but, uh, his accent was, strong enough that it was hard to discern, especially in a microphone in a full ballroom with speakers everywhere. I mean, kudos to them. The audio is pretty good. Enunciating uh, his numbers, uh, it could be improved upon. So uh, the auctioneer goes at 13. You hear him, you know, call for 13. He gets a bid. Uh, He rolls into 13, looking for 13 and a half. Um, and so you hear him say 13,500, but then all of a sudden he, he says 14 and on the, on the board behind him shows 40 million. And the auction room is now like standing on their feet. Uh, you know, only the people in the front rows are sitting down. Everybody else is standing up. Their phones are in their hand, you know, photos, videos are going and there's, I think I'm getting hairs on my goosebumps just talking about it, but like everybody in the room just got electrified. I mean, they're up on their feet. They're excited. This was just a $10 million bump, right? An auction bid. And then you hear the auctioneer, you know, he's calling 40, 14, you hear 14, five, whether you choose to or not. I, in the video, I rewatched it and he does say five, he asked for 500,000 and all of a sudden he gets uh, 15 and 50 million gets put on the board. And the, and the auction room is, you know, on their tippy toes everyone is interested and and like momentum is building the electricity is building this is kind of like a uh, i've never been to a major uh, title boxing match but uh this is this is exciting people are, are are cheering for it and then you know now the audience is 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 getting louder so it's even harder to hear what the auctioneer is saying and of course he's got his you know auctioneer dribble and he is working the phone bidders and there's about four or five RM staff members uh, on the phones, and uh, you can't tell if anyone's bidding in the auction audience because you know everyone's standing up with their arms in the air, holding up their phones. So I don't know what the bid spotters were doing uh, or what the or what the auctioneer can see, but it had to have been challenging. And so, uh, you know, for me in being in the room whether you heard the auctioneer call like 14 and a half and then when it went to 15 and you heard him call 15 five and then he got to 60 or and then the screen shows 60 million i mean it wasn't registering all you saw 
in the matter of seconds was that the screen said 30 million and then all of a sudden it said 40 million and the audience is cheering and now it says 50 million and the audience is cheering louder and I mean, it gets all the way up to 70 million and the, the, the room is losing their mind. I mean, it is gangbusters and, you know, this far surpassed the Ferrari GTO that sold last year. Anything else that I have ever seen in public, I've, I've never seen $10 million bid increments at a car auction before. Uh, so th- this is, this is monumental. And then. Yeah, let's touch, touch on that GTO. This it's 70 million. We're almost. 20 to 25 million dollars higher than anything's ever been paid at auction before for any automobile. There might be private sales for more money or similar money, but this is the you know 70 million is the highest amount ever bid for a car at public auction. And so and we can understand why there's a little bit of fever and a historic moment. There. Absolutely. There, there's a lot of, I work with a lot of car collectors. I think many, many a savvy enthusiast go to Monterey, almost expect to pay a little bit of a premium because the, it's a, it's a global market when you go to buy a car at an auction at Monterey, whether you're in the room or calling on the phone or bidding online, it is a world currency sort of exchange here on the, on the Monterey Peninsula. And so for it to go to 70 million was astonishing. Uh, I know RM Sotheby's did a great job of marketing the car. They did a video on it that was released early. Their press releases were good. The car certainly has a unique history. It's got provenance, however you interpret it. It it certainly deserved this attention. I don't think anybody in the room thought it would go that high, in my opinion. Uh, You know, 20, 30 million, that. You know, I heard some rumors or rumblings of people sitting around me that that is kind of what they thought it would go for. But for it to to, to just skyrocket to 70 million. And uh, I, I actually used the stopwatch and clocked it. And, uh, you know, based on what I start and stopped it, it was about a minute and 10 seconds from when the auctioneer started until the auctioneer basically called timeout when he realized that the the board behind him or on the screen was showing 70 million. He called a timeout and said, no, I need to correct this. You know, I'm speaking it is the, the current bid is one seven seventeen million, And uh, so that was about a minute and 10 seconds into this. If you put yourself in the room, you know, here's a amazing car it rolls onto the stage and you know the the bidding opens and it's 30 million it's you know 40 million 50 million this is all a matter of less than a minute i mean you know less than you know the time you brush your teeth i mean this is this is just skyrocketed so for for you to multitask and think about Okay, what am I seeing on the screen versus did I did I hear the auctioneer call for 500 because that doesn't make sense if he's taking 10 million dollar bid increments and we I think a lot of listeners and I know myself included have probably been to auctions where you know the auctioneer has called a timeout and 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 clarified who had the high bid or if there was an error uh, you see it on live auctions and so I'm glad they did it it might be an Achilles heel it it may be this could be a camel the, the straw that breaks the camel's back because it's such a significant car arm sotheby's is a very significant auction company and it's it, uh, going to be uh, interesting to continue to read and see what the public opinion is uh on the result of this to the auctioneer's credit he caught it basically rewound uh down or to or actually the auctioneer's mind he was at 17 million they readjusted the screen numbers to 17 million uh, I actually kept filming and uh, ran my stopwatch today 
and he, uh, the auctioneer was working for 17 million for the next three minutes and 55 seconds before he hammered it as a no sale. And so this entire process was five minutes and five seconds, uh, you know, based on my timing from the film that I shot. So this is a lot of action, a lot of information to happen in five minutes, let alone the approximately one minute, 10 seconds that, you know, got out of whack uh, before they could reel it back in. Do you think that had some sort of effect? I mean, we're, we're talking, and, and even if we give the benefit of the doubt, we had people bidding in the, the million, half million dollar increments, 13, 13, 5, 14, 14, 5, 15, 15, yep. 5, 16, 16, 5, 17. And we got to 17, and then the board's saying 70, and we correct the board, and we just literally spent, and we just watched a car go up in val or whatever bid price, a million dollars a second. And all of a sudden it's brought back down to <laughs> quarter million dollars a second. <laughs> and it, uh, it, did it deflate the room? Do you think it had impact? Because like you said, he tried for another, for almost four minutes, which in auction terms is an eternity. You know, Barrett Jackson runs cars two to, two to three minutes. Nothing stays on the block more than three minutes. And he tried for four minutes beyond, so almost five minutes on the block to try to go from 13, or from, excuse me, 17. Right, even absolutely. And a half. The, the room, when, when the auctioneer, you know, called timeout and corrected the screen, um, the, 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 the temperature in the room changed. I mean, it, it was, it went from an emotional high. This is an unstoppable freight train. It, it literally crashed. I mean, the room, the everyone public opinion turned 180 degrees and every, I mean, there was moans, groans, there was booing. I have it on video. Um, it, everyone was distraught and in disbelief. Like, wait, what a minute? Like we just went from 30 to 70 million in less than a minute. And now you're taking it all back. Like, don't do this to me. You know, I think people felt victimized and uh, I was, I was astonished. I mean, I'm still sort of in disbelief that that happened. And it's, uh, it is certainly a, um, uh, you know, a mistake wherever the, the, the blame lies, but the room, I mean, Joe public consumer uh, enthusiast who was in the room was just at the top of the mountain. And now they got, pushed off. I mean, they were, it was, it, it was upsetting and it, it changed the mood dramatically. I mean, everyone sat down, lots of people who were standing in the back left. And then as they proceeded for the next four minutes to try to sell the car at 17, I mean, there was just murmurings all over the auction room. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was total disrespect. If you're, if you're giving a speech in the front of the room and this was your audience, you would just feel ashamed because it, it was just disrespectful. But, but, you know, the circumstances may or may not have dictated it, but uh, it was not a friendly crowd. No one threw beer bottles or popcorn at the front of the room, but uh, it was probably close and yeah yeah the auctioneer tried for the next four minutes to 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 get 17 or maybe he had 17 and he tried to get another bid um and then at the end of it all it did not sell and they had to pass on the car uh anyone who goes to an auction you know they they know if it doesn't sell i mean maybe it never had real money 
in the first place, or maybe the car didn't re- reserve. I mean, we we don't know, and and that's at you know uh, the auction houses, I guess, um, prerogative to disclose. Uh, and in this case, for this car, they didn't didn't have to. So it it definitely deflated the room, uh, like many times with these sort of milestone or hero cars. In the course of an evening, the room tends to clear out, but this was the last major car of the night. Uh, yeah, I would say at least you know a third of the room kind of picked up and walked off, and uh, there was you know there were open seats uh, in the room by the time you know I left, probably ten ten cars later um, after this car sold. So it uh, it definitely took took the momentum out of the room, which hurts which hurts performance for the auction for the rest of the night it certainly lowers in my opinion the um the extra bidders that you have potential from uh of course the people that are in the room are there to buy a particular car or to bid on a particular car they'll stick through anything but the uh the other sort of uh enthusiasts who occupy seats and uh, are curious about cars and, and may bid on something if the price is right you know i think they got up and left it was uh it was it was definitely a buzzkill yeah, I, I you know my, I theorized in it, and I, we're talking you know the pre-auction estimates I heard on that car were twenty twenty-two million, maybe twenty-five, and a lot of controversy behind it. And I guess my auction experience, and I know Adam, you've attended a lot more auctions than I have. People spending that kind of money, uh, unless it's Barrett Jackson on a Saturday in January, aren't in the crowd. They're the phone bidders, and. My theory is if I'm a phone bidder and I've got, you know, I, okay, I've decided I'm spending twenty two twenty five on this car. As soon as that <laughs> thing hits 50, I'm hanging up. What's the odds of it coming back down to my price range? And I would just wonder if they lost some of those phone bidders or some of the serious buyers. I mean, when you get into the rules of an auction, you know, there's a reason the term chandelier bidder exists and all the auction catalogs and all the auction contracts state that, you know, the house can bid up to reserve price. So things like that. So maybe 17 million was real in the room. Maybe 17 million wasn't. But I just would happen to have to think that there was probably somebody at one point in the room or on the phone or on the Internet that you know, was going to be that 20 or $22 million bid. And I, you know, so it, to me, it hurt it at that sale. That's my personal opinion, not reflecting on you, not reflecting on Derek, not reflecting on RM or anybody. But what I think is going to be interesting is where does the car go to next? Uh, does RM put this at another big event? Do they put it at a European event? Uh, I mean, it's a car. It's a story. And I, I allude to it a lot on the episodes. You know, watch American Pickers. Stories sell. This just adds, you know, this is a controversial car to begin with, whether or not it's a Porsche, whether or not it's real, whether how much of it's original. Now it's got an auction, you know, a very unique auction story behind it. I don't think it, I mean, in the long term, I don't think it hurts this car. It just adds to the car and might give an opportunity for RM to say, okay, to the owner or whatever consortium owns, you know, controls the car, let's run it again and it'll be a lot clearer and we're going to get a lot more press about it. So I don't, 
You know, as the car owner, I don't know if I'm upset it didn't sell at Monterey, unless, of course, I, you know, had a penthouse in New York I was going to pay for with the proceeds. But what's, what's your thinking on it? Do you think this hurts the car? Do you think this helps the car? Do you think this hurt RM? Do you think this helps RM? Um, you know, I'm a firm believer in any publicity as good publicity just depends how you spin it. And I think RM's done its job of spinning. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think any publicity is good publicity. Um, and it, and we have to kind of zoom out from a macro level uh, over the lifespan of this automobile. This is another milestone uh, in its history. Uh, I think me, me, you and I might have some some similar stories when it comes to consulting with car collectors. And, and it is important for automobiles to have exposure and to be photographed and to be mentioned, you know, from a uh, appreciation standpoint, if you have a rare one-off car that maybe won a particular race or was driven by someone or it's a one-off coach built, it certainly helps when that car is seen in a magazine or if it's photographed or if it, it gets debuted at a certain car show or concour. I mean, that that is just great investment management. You know, uh, it, it, the fact that it's an automobile, you know, kind of, it's a head scratcher. Museums do this by having, you know, art galleries and expositions and, you know, uh, King Tut's tomb's been around the world a few times, I think already. So it, uh, it certainly helps. And I know RM's getting back to your question about like the auction house's job to have you know, qualified bidders and interested bidders lined up for every car. So I, I have to believe um, that RM did their due diligence and they had real money or real bidders on the phones or in the room or bidding online, you know, ready for this car. And, um, you know, they demonstrated uh, that they weren't willing to spend that much money uh, and 17 uh, wasn't going to sell the car that day. That's okay. There were Lots of other important cars that did not sell this past, you know, the week ago in Monterey that we're not talking about. And every auction company has a couple of cars that doesn't sell, if not a few more. So it's just uh, timing, right time, wrong time, maybe for this particular car, but long term. This is just one more page in the book of history for this car. And Time will tell if it adds value, if it doesn't. I think at the end of the day, all car guys should be buying and enjoying cars that make them happy and fulfill them in whatever reason um, they're looking to achieve. This is this certainly has the DNA of Porsche. It's a uh, it's, uh, it's it's unarguable. I you know what raises the question for me and a lot of my peers is uh, you know why why hasn't Porsche AG purchased the car? Uh, why is it not in their per Permanent collection. Why has this not sold privately um, before coming to a public auction? I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions that I think myself and Joe Public, you know, may not ever get answers to. And there's only a few people close to this car who might know the real answer. And maybe that comes out, you know, five or 10 or 50 years from now in a, in a, in a new book, you know, that the untold stories. And then at that point in time, this car is uh, acknowledged and, and sells publicly. So there's lots of arguments, uh, but you've been to enough car auctions. You see this, this carousel goes around and around. I think it, I think it certainly helps build the story for the car, whether you like it or not. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about it for, for, for many years. And every, I think every Porsche enthusiast will be, uh, remembering that day. And, uh, it goes down in their notebooks, uh, for, <laughs> for future conversations. Uh, it is, uh, it, it, it was monumental. I'll give it that. 
I think we've touched on the, the 64 quite extensively <laughs> in this episode. Derek's been very quiet because. Well, wait. I I, I want to. I well, I want to ask. I want to ask Adam a question. I'm 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 trying to keep personal opinions out of out of this somewhat. What was did you did you pick up on any conversations in the room? And you know, John alluded to it a little bit, but I you know, I I don't think you touched on it much. Kind of a, a, about. RM's Sotheby's reputation going forward after this blunder, mainly because in knowing the two auction houses, RM and Sotheby's now, of course, uh, joined RM Sotheby's, uh, you know, kind of group of those. So they've uh, both had blunders in their past as, as individual, as individual, auction houses before becoming RM Sotheby's. I mean, was there any commentary in the audience that you heard or anything you've heard after the fact that, you know, anything along the lines of, of, you know, Oh, just a, just another messed up auction by RM or Sotheby's or RM Sotheby's. I'm just, I'm curious because, you know, I know some of the history of both companies Again, trying to keep personal opinions, things out of this, but I'm just curious if if you heard anything that night or anything, you know, after the auction the next day, anything like that. Sure, I, I can appreciate that. It, you know, in the moment, um, like many things, you have to sort of manage your emotional response to, you know, it's, it's sort of this, uh, as I described, you know, the roller coaster, uh, you know, climbing to the top of the mountain and then kind of being pushed off. This. Uh, there were a lot of people sort of in disbelief. The comments, you know, sort of by the people sitting around me. And as I heard later uh, in the evening, you know, they were just shaking their heads. Like, I can't believe, you know, this happened. Rumors of the, oh, is this like that Banksy thing with, uh, you know, the, the self, you know, destroying artwork. And this is supposed to be a joke. And were they were they trying to be funny? I mean, I, I heard some of those remarks um, but I genuinely believe this was a, you know, a, just an on a simple mistake uh, between, you know, what the auctioneer was intending and somehow the disconnect with the computer system that uh, puts the number on the screen. I mean, this uh, I've been to enough auctions that I mean, technical difficulties are a real thing <laughs> and you, you do have to kind of call time out. And we, we wish everything ran uh, as perfectly as it can every time. But but things like this do happen. And. I think uh, in the moment, people were were disenfranchised. They were, you know, disillusioned. They were upset. But I think, you know, generally speaking, the next day, you know, at the Concord field and the, and the people that I've talked to afterwards, it's just a speed bump in, you know, the road of life. It's just uh, another, you know, another business is just trying to move along. They had a mistake. They corrected it. Uh, in the moment, it was terrible, but it's it's not the end of the world. Um, I don't I don't believe this is going to hurt. RM Sotheby's going forward. I mean, I go way back, not not from the beginning with RM, but certainly since 2003 and four, I've been traveling essentially on the the same circuit as RM Auctions uh, and now RM Sotheby's has. So I know a lot of the staff, and I, I call them friends. And you know, I I, I know they have good interest, and in, and uh, I think this is just one of those just unfortunate incidents that uh, was with a very significant car. So it's definitely garnering a lot of spotlight and a lot of attention. I know the RM Sotheby's sort of. Uh, train is moving forward and they've got auctions lined up and they're marketing and, and looking forward to their future options. And this, you know, this will be discussed and talked about 
I think people who buy at auctions um, know the risks. Um, I hope they're savvy enough to ask good questions of people who've gone to auctions and buy at auctions before. And yeah, I mean, it really is buyer beware. Um, so when you, but one, you know, the one car, the one of one example that you want is only available through an auction. You know, you've got to, you've got to go there to buy it uh, or call in and, you know, arm Sotheby's isn't the only auction company to have issues. I mean, I've certainly been to other auction companies. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys remember, but, you know, Russo and Steele had their tents blow over uh, in Scottsdale. Um, I was there uh, as a Haggerty employee at the time uh, and, you know, doing insurance work. And that was uh, Mother Nature uh, at her finest. And, you know, Russo and Steele did a fine job recovering and and uh, they're celebrating 20 years next year. So, um I think auction companies, especially in the car world, are, are doing their best. And, you know, it's unfortunate that this this happened on such a significant car. But in the long run, I think we'll we'll all move forward. And, you know, they're, they're still going to sell cars and, and uh, people are still going to consign with them. Um, you know, you could argue you know, how successful they'll be or are they going to get 10 percent fewer consignments? Are the reserves going to go down? That's so far in the minutiae. Um, I, I don't think we'll 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 know those details. Uh, only the RM team will say, wow, what was supposed to be a 10 minute conversation? We really got in depth and we're about 35, 40 minutes into this. And I think there's I think there's a lot of interesting points and thoughts and just a little bit. It's, it's a fun topic, and say blunders are happenings. Instead of using the words blunders, happenings like this don't happen every day in the uh, collector car world, or at least don't happen on this this scale. Uh, I, like Adam said, I have seen them bring back bids and correct bids, but usually it's not on a fifteen or twenty million dollar car. It's on a you know. Thirty thousand yeah. dollar GTO. Yeah, absolutely. Things like I that. Mean, and usually, <laughs> and, they're, they're, and usually, you don't re- reduce it by like thirty million. You know, that's that, that Corvette math. That's like fifty three million. We reduced it. <laughs> It, it certainly was an automotive happening, and it yeah, it yeah. Uh, it will sort of benchmark. I think the times. If, if you want to get real high level, uh, you look at the overall performance of the auctions uh, this this past uh, week in Monterey. Um, you know, their numbers were down compared to the 2008 equivalent week. So, you know, what is the overall market sentiment? You could you could tie a lot of things into this and, and symbolism about the significance of this car. Uh, what I'm here to say is that the automotive action on the peninsula, Monterey Peninsula, was still exciting and exceptional. Enthusiasts were out driving cars, uh, showing at car shows. Um, there's more and more young people on street corners taking pictures. I mean, the this automotive paparazzi, I'm not sure if you guys have talked about it before, but me as a car guy, um, sort of concerned about the next generation of automotive enthusiasts and and what is their gateway into the automobile world. Young you boys and girls, 10, 12, 13, 15, 20 year olds, I see all the ages. They're on street corners taking pictures of stuff and they've got a social media presence. They've got Instagram accounts and they're they're happy to take photos of stuff and and um 
you know, I, I wasn't taking pictures of cars. I was in the garage working on cars. Um, but if it takes, you know, a young person to see a Bugatti Veyron go by and, and to get them excited and for them to take out their phone, take a picture and post it, then, then I think the future of the automotive hobby is, is going to be just fine. It'll certainly evolve and change, but I think we're, we're building enthusiasts. And as I looked at the demographics in the room that night of at RM Sotheby's with that type 64, I mean, there was a, a huge range of, of ages. I mean, I saw, you know, young kids holding mom and dad's hand walking down the auction aisle to find their seats. And I saw, you know, the traditional 60, 70 year olds that, uh, you know, are, are there consistently, you know, buying, you know, uh, large cars and stuff. So um, yeah, overall, I, I feel the hobby is still our, our core enthusiast group is there, enthusiastic and excited about cars. It just wasn't packed to the gills as it usually has been uh, over the last gosh, probably 10 years. So say let's saunter off of the RM and the type 64 and some of that auction stuff. And, um, kind of enjoyed having you as a, your commentary here, Adam. And I'm sure I want to have you back on the show to kind of chat, chat cars with, excuse me, Derek and I sometime we're, you know, about 42 minutes, 41 minutes, depending on what editing does into this episode, you kind of, and I'm going to, I guess, take creative license here because I'm the host and it's my show. You, But you, you kind of operate a You similar... said it was our show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it's our show. <laughs> That's what you said. Uh, <laughs> you operate kind of a... Uh, you kind of operate a similar business to what I do in some of the automotive consulting and advising and but you have a much more um extensive background in insurance and that's I think a bulk of what you want to do and can you would you want to tell us a little bit about what your day job is and how you fit into this automotive collector car world is and potentially some of what either your business does and what some of the goals of your business are, because I kind of think, I think over the years as we've talked, I kind of get an idea of what you <laughs> want to do, but let's, uh, let's hear it from you and get Derek to answer some questions in that. And I don't want to get too deep into insurance and stated value and any of that. We're going to do an insurance episode and we'll probably have to have you on either as a commentator or maybe even a moderator. But um, go ahead and tell me a little bit about Martin International and uh, what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John. Yeah, Martin International is uh, my insurance agency, and we focus on car collectors uh, at its core. Uh, Myself, I'm a car enthusiast, restore. Uh, like you mentioned in the opening, I'm a McPherson College graduate, and um, I'm, I'm grateful for that automotive experience, and it kind of catapulted me into this great sort of automotive world. And uh, from my days at McPherson College, I transitioned uh, over to Haggerty Insurance, where I worked with Haggerty for 10 years uh, with McKeel uh, and a number of other amazing people. And uh, I ran their private client services department and later helped um, build 
build and develop the uh, Haggerty price guide and the valuation tools and the Vindicator, um, which is a free public service that Haggerty continues to offer today. So I'm, I'm, I'm a hands-on car guy. I still have the first car I ever bought, my 68 Camaro. Uh, I still work on that in the garage and enjoy that. So I, I take care of car collectors because I share their same passion and their same skin knuckles. And I have uh, a pension for details and data and information. And that comes uh, comes to be very important when it comes to looking at insurance paperwork uh, and looking after a car collection. So uh, the core of my business uh, with insurance is starts with the car collection. But being an independent agent, I offer many other lines of insurance. So uh, I, I take care of car collectors in their homes, their boats, their watch collections, their tools, even their airplanes and their horse ranches. It, it doesn't matter. You know, once you you find someone you like working with, uh, you start up that rapport, and I bring value to that car collector by looking after all of their insurance. Um, it's really nice to be able to package that together and and be that you know uh, advisor to them, uh, looking after all of their insurances. So I also look after restoration shops and classic car dealerships. Uh, I don't want to leave them out because uh, they need car collectors, and just as much as car collectors need a great restoration shop, and that goes back to our background coming from the person car. So I like to be a conduit and bring great people together and provide those introductions because I feel that in, that further improves the hobby. It keeps it going together. And uh, as our friend Jay Leno says, like, if you don't drive it, you don't break it. If you don't break it, you don't know how to fix it. And it's the tools, the techniques, the equipment, the parts that I, you know, I, I want to make sure we keep driving them, keep breaking them, keep fixing them so this hobby can perpetuate because these old cars are meant to be rebuilt. And uh, if they do have an accident, you know, I'm there to kind of catch you, pick up the pieces with the insurance and help you get that car put back together. So that's that's my day job. That's what I like doing. I get to work with people all across the country and internationally. People are shipping their cars to the U.S. to do driving tours. Uh, you need insurance to do that. If you want to ship your car overseas and do Goodwood, if you want to do the Minimilia, if you want to go to Australia, there's all kinds of special insurance you need to have for that. So I'm your go-to guy when it comes to doing anything fun with your classic car on the insurance side of things. And I kind of liked it when you said, because this will, this is how I'll get us to our next episode when you were referring to Leno and if you don't drive it, you don't break it. If you don't break it, you don't know how to fix it. And that's what Derek gets into. And <laughs> as Derek alluded earlier, that's what he enjoys and trying to get the, this, these cars set up for certain events in his future. And, um, you know, unfortunately, in my case, if I break, I sell them. But uh, I, I want to say, and this is something for Derek to think about, because Derek didn't meet you, uh, let's see here, Derek probably met you about an hour and 15 minutes ago for the first time by voice, other than a passing mm -hmm. at a conference a few years ago. There's an old story I remember about you, and I don't know if I was still in school or I just got out of school, and I don't know who told it to me. But you were on a tour with a group of guys, and I can't even remember what type of cars, but it was in Florida, and you got going along, and somebody's car broke down, and, and it probably happens to you all the time. And you helped them, like, rebuild their axle or something on the side of the road so they can complete the tour and that. And that sounds a lot like Derek, you know, and even sounds a little bit a lot like Will, and, uh, you know, and, and that you, you've done these tours and participated in these, you know, good, you know, good, reputable tours and things like that. And you're really a, I mean, you're, you're like me and 
have the clean, um, I would say polo shirt and slacks kind of day job, not necessarily suit and tie, but you're beyond me and a little bit into that Derek thing where you really like to get down and dirty too and uh, um, really get, get get involved. Is that a made-up story I have about you or is that uh, No, that, that that's spot on. In fact, I, I can think of like three stories off the top of my head where I've been on a rally and, you know, stuff breaks and uh, it, it's, you got to help, right? Everyone's got to finish. Uh, everyone needs to get to the next spot or to get somewhere safe. And, um, I, uh, was fortunate enough to be able to do the Pebble Beach Motoring Classic, which is a rally from Seattle down to Monterey, um, just prior to Pebble Beach. It's, it's an event that's in conjunction with it. And I was there with a client and, I mean, I pinched myself even thinking about it, but we got to drive a, a Model J Duesenberg touring car all the way down, 1,500 miles from Seattle down to Monterey. Uh, you, know, you know this. I uh, I interned for Randy Ema, uh, who is one of the foremost experts on Duesenbergs. So it was almost serendipitous that here I am many years later driving in a Duesenberg from Seattle down to Monterey, and we just happened to shear off the, the pinion gear off of the drive shaft. I mean when's the last time that's happened to anybody, let alone <laughs> in a Duesenberg. And so thankfully there was another gentleman on the rally who was another Duesenberg enthusiast. Uh, his place happened to be on the, on the route that we were driving. Uh, it was several you know days and, and miles ahead of where we were when we broke, but we managed to get the broken car and ourselves down to his shop and, uh, we basically swapped differentials or third members out of one Duesenberg into this other Duesenberg so we could finish the rally. Uh, and we did. And, uh, you know, it was it was one of those, you know, overcome adversity and, you know, kind of a bonding moment with uh, my, my client, the driver and, uh, and a few other technicians uh, that were, you know, restoration guys that were on the rally and stuff. So it, uh, we, we, we love sharing that story. And, and the whole drive by itself was fantastic. But then to have this, you know, obstacle to overcome together and solve and still finish, you know, with the rest of the group was was monumental. So uh, that was that was one of the many exciting moments of, uh, you know, what's already a great experience. Kind of quickly turn south, you break down and oh, what was me? And then you scratch your head and go, okay, how do I fix this? Because we've got to finish. You know, I'm not going to tuck the tail to my legs. Let's figure this out. And, you know, we got to it. So it uh it, it worked out well <laughs> and it's and now it's a great story yeah, derek had a reaction to your randy ema statement but before i let him go on that i just have a quick question so when you break this duesenberg down on this tour do you like flatbed it or do you just chain tow it do you just wrap a chain around another duesenberg's bumper and drag it the rest of the way to the <laughs> that's, a, that's a scary picture to, to think about but uh no in this particular instance given um our location and all these, uh, you know, reliable and inner city, you know, professional enclosed transporters going from Monterey or excuse me, Seattle down to Monterey, we were able to basically grab an open spot on one of these trailers just by pure luck. And they got us from where we broke down to, um, to this repair shop, this, this collector's, um, collection where we could, where he had a hoist, where he had tools, you know, where he had a spare Duesenberg that he wasn't using that we could pull the diff out of. So, um, it, 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 that, I mean, the stars truly aligned in order for us to kind of pull this off. Um, and it, it worked out quite well and <laughs> we finished. 
Spare Duesenberg that you're not using first world problems, <laughs> that's, right? Dan, that, that's that's one of my biggest problems is my spare Duesenberg I'm not using. Just, you know, one of these days uh, I might use it. It's just a good redundancy uh, system, right? I mean, if you're going to have one Corvette, you might as well have two, uh, you know, and, you know, that way you're never without, so. That is true. Yeah, no, uh, John, you know, of course, uh, Adam, you know, John and I are, are also kind of staring at each other blankly on video here. Unfortunately, for some reason, John likes <laughs> to do that. I think it's to keep me and Will and Will in check when we're uh, actually all three together. But yeah, I, I had a bit of a reaction to, um, you know, you, you thrown out, been an intern for Randy Ema. Randy Ema has been a, a friend for, for quite a few years. Yeah, it just it kind of shocked me to hear you. You know, you had interned with Randy, and um, he's he's a great guy. And actually, in the in the pre-show, and and most of our listeners know, um, I you know I mentioned I have that 1923 Peerless V8, uh, it, and that is the reason I have that car is due to Randy Ema. He is a, a good friend and and someone who actually aided in the acquisition of of that car for my private collection. So um, yeah, it's it's always great to hear other people that have, have, uh, had the opportunity to know Randy and, and get to work around. Oh, here, that's, so. that's just outstanding. It, it just goes to show how incredible the automotive world is and, and good people finding good people and, and finding good cars. So I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you've got a fun connection too to Randy. I, I just saw him a week ago in Monterey and stuff. So he and, uh, uh, Cecil, uh, one of his guys are up there. So, uh, he's it's so, so fascinating. So cool. <laughs> Okay, we've got two hosts that know Randy when he's guesting on the show. Wait, John, John, <laughs> did you catch the part where Adam said it's good that, you know, good to know that good people find each other? See, Randy's one of those good people, um, and there's a reason you probably don't know him, but Adam and I do. So. <laughs> oh, good people, not great people. I understand now. That's a stretch. That's a stretch. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Do we have another story we want to hit because we're right about that 60 minute mark and kind of like to wrap it up? I there would say, no, I mean, I go ahead, Dick. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Adam. I was going to ramble uh, on on just you know my opinions on like rallying and touring and using cars, if, if that's appropriate uh, at oh. this time or if you want to save it. No, yeah. we don't use cars. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I don't use them. Huh? <laughs> John doesn't use his cars. Yeah, go go ahead. We we okay. can go a little bit longer. Um, Let's ramble, and I'm sure Derek will have some input on this. We need we haven't had a lot of speaking. All right, well, this episode. It's because I'm anxious to get back in the garage and get working on my car. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I will say one of the other interesting things I noticed about the Monterey Week in in general were all of the. Uh, automotive driving tours that have, you know, started in various cities and then converged on the Monterey Peninsula. So they, they, you know, in addition to the Pebble Beach Motoring Classic, which are, um, uh, cars eligible to show on the Pebble Beach lawn, uh, mostly European sports car classics and, and things of that nature. But, uh, there was the fuel run. There was, uh, there actually was a Seattle to Monterey run full of other exotic sports cars. And then, um, I, I don't recognize there's a few other stickers on the sides of doors of uh, car groups that had driven in and that's that's what i find 
most enjoyable about the car collecting hobby is actually getting out and using your cars. Uh, I think we all we all enjoy going to a car show or a concours, but I'm I'm not the type to sit in a lawn chair uh, behind a car and uh, talk to people. I'm I'm rather more proactive and find great enjoyment about driving our cars and sharing them with others. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to do the Colorado Grand and the Copper State 1000 and the Milla Milla and London to Brighton and there's there's nothing uh, for me more fun to share it with other people whether it's at the gas station and letting that curious kid come over and sit in the car and ask you questions and and take their picture and and you know i'm not hyper protective of all my stuff like i, I don't want you to scratch it intentionally but you know things happen and uh, hey that's what you got insurance for so you know for me the I, I the hobby is going to perpetuate itself and um i think we will find future value from cars that we can do something with, whether it's a race car at a private racetrack or if it's a car that is, uh, you know, has the latest Mr. Fusion, you know, from Back to the Future, so it can run in tomorrow's roads. But um, I'm a big believer in getting cars out and using them and sharing them to maintain, you know, positive public opinion for old cars on roads. But as well, as I said before, that if you got to drive them because you got to break them because you know how to fix them and we need parts for them. And it just helps our sort of automotive economy keep uh, keep rolling forward and growing um, healthier and healthier year over year. So uh, I'm sure both you guys like driving your cars and you probably get together with some of your friends, I hope, and, and go cruising around. Friends? <laughs> I'm oh, going to surprise sorry. everybody and say, actually, I do. You don't have a car to drive, John. You just go. You just go beg for rides. Yeah, but my newer under warranty <laughs> stuff. No, I. So yeah, what I was gonna say earlier, and I, I want to jump in right now, Adam. Not meaning to cut you off or anything, but it, you know, it's been really interesting having you on the show because not only you you gave us a you know in the room play by play run on on what happened at Pebble, but. So much of what you touched on kind of there in the last you know couple minutes is is a lot about what of a lot of what we talk about on the show about getting the younger generation involved. We always talk about some topic, but yeah, you know, we almost always wind up talking about exactly what you've thrown out there. and that's uh, for us, that's a big part of this show is, yeah, we're going to talk about whatever topic is at hand uh, that night, but we don't, again, that no driving gloves motto, you know, we, we are all pretty open with our feelings about things. Uh, you know, it's a, a kind of a gloves off approach, but it's also means that, you know, the, the topic might go anywhere as, as we talked about in the pre-show. It's just, it, you know, it's refreshing that we kind of keep stumbling upon people that, you know, are in the industry, in the field somewhere of this, you know, automotive, uh, you know, especially vintage automotive field of whether it's, you know, restoring the cars, museum work, insurance work, whatever, whatever portion of this world that you're in that are attempting to encourage the younger generation through any means to get involved in this. And, you know, also to look at it from a different perspective. I think we've talked about it on the show a couple times. Too many people think that the only way to get the younger generation involved is to 
force them to work on the cars or, you know, do something, you know, hands-on or physical with the vehicle. But that's not the only way. It's like you said, you know, there were, there were 10, 12, 15 year old kids standing on the street corners in Monterey and probably down in Carmel and all the different places there around Pebble beach during that, you know, week of, of events, taking pictures, making social media posts, uh, just, you know, Oh my God, I saw a Bugatti Veyron or Chayron or, you know, a McLaren or whatever, you know, whatever's out there. Because one of the big things that, you know, I think all of us understand and uh, hopefully all of us understand and, and see is that as kids, we typically always had either a poster or pictures or something of a car we we dreamed of owning or dreamed of uh, seeing in person or you know having the opportunity to drive or something like that. And for some of us oddballs, uh, talking about myself here, granted it was you know pictures of you know. 1903 Packards and, and, you know, locomobiles and all, all the brass horseless carriage, brass era, classic car stuff. I, I was an odd duck. Dr- those dreams led me into a field where cars I read about when I was a kid and, and dreamt about, I've had the experience of working on driving and, and sharing, as you say, sharing with the public, their stories. Uh, granted, they're not my cars, they're cars at museums <laughs> I've worked at. But those same kids that are standing out on the street corner in Pebble Beach, Monterey, Carmel, all those places, taking those pictures, making those social media posts, those are their posters and their pictures in books and magazines. Now it's all digital. And those kids have their dream cars now. And when they grow up, there's a chance that a good you know, few of, a few of those kids are going to be so hooked on that that it's going to drive them to figure out a way to either own that car or, you know, work on that car or, you know, do something that is involved with the automotive field. So I always like to hear, you know, those alternative, uh, alternate uh, perspectives that some of our guests bring. And I think that was an amazing one you shared because it is, it's, it's about just respecting what the younger generation is interested in especially when it draws them to the automobile. Absolutely. The, whatever that gateway is for them to be curious about automobiles or motorcycles or trucks, um, it, it doesn't matter. You know, just as long as they show curiosity, I think uh, you, you just enable that and allow them that exposure. Uh, and one thing I haven't mentioned is uh, my wife, Ann, and I, we're, we're ambassadors for the RPM Foundation. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have spoken to it or are familiar with it, but it's, um, you know, it's a foundation that supports restoration and preservation of the automotive field for car restoration shops, for, you know, McPherson College. If there's a student who needs, you know, financial aid to go to a McPherson College or another automotive school, if a car club is doing something automotive related with the younger generation to get them engaged, um, there's a, a number of things uh, that the RPM Foundation wants to get involved with, and they're another sort of tip of the spear group um, out there uh, proactively enabling, you know, young people who want to play with cars or get into the car world, you know, find their way. They're, they're very much a recruitment channel 
to, you know, find the kid who wants to, you know, work on NASCARs and, and funnel them to the NASCAR path. Or if there's uh, an engineering, you know, student that wants to work for F1, like there's there's a pathway that they can use through R- RPM to uh, to get there possibly more quickly or get them to an internship uh, sooner and to really test out their theories. Do they like working in that space? So um, we're, we're not alone. We've got lots of other cool people out there that are that are working uh, towards uh, helping the next generation. So uh, we just got to continue, continue the good fight. Yeah, I want to keep uh, keep wanting to reach out to Diana at RPM and see if uh, we can get her on the show to kind of talk about some of the stuff they do, because that's a continuation of a program that was started many years.